Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. These words were penned by the 19th century British poet William Ernest Henley in his poem Invictus. And while perhaps stirring words, are they true? Well, certainly not according to the text that we just read this morning from the Apostle Paul. The truth is, none of us are free. All of us are slaves to something. Maybe you're a slave to your iPhone. The thing, this little device beeps and, and you just, you can't help it, but you've got to check right away. It doesn't matter if you're in a conversation with somebody, right? Or some folks, especially guys, are slaves to work, to their job. Maybe they find their significance in their work and their family suffers. I wonder how many, both men and women, teenagers even, in this room are slaves to lust. Well, all of us have a master. The question is, who is your master? According to the Word of God, and according to our text this morning, we're either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, before we get too far and try to unpack this text a little bit more, I want to talk to you for a couple minutes about just the theme of slavery and the Bible. Maybe that word that you heard eight times when Pastor Stephen read our text this morning, maybe it made you cringe a little bit. Um, I, I counted eight times at least where the, the Greek word doulos or a derivative of doulos, which is translated slave here, is used. And maybe it makes you a little uncomfortable because it wasn't that long ago in our own country in which there were horrors of slavery. And sadly today, some skeptics charge that the Bible is silent on the subject of slavery. And even more sadly, there were Christians just 150, 200 years ago who used the Bible wrongly to try to defend their own sinful practice of owning and abusing slaves. So I just want to talk with you for a moment about that. Um, first of all, the Bible does not condone slavery. The Bible actually teaches that slavery, as it was practiced in North America from the 16th through the 18th centuries, was a great, actually through the 19th centuries, was a great sin. And, and why, why do I say that? Well, first of all, Thematically, the Bible was very clear that all humans are descendants of Adam. 
and so ultimately one race. The Bible also teaches that all humans are made in the image of God, so all people, despite their ethnic background or their language, must be treated with dignity and respect equally. In fact, throughout the Bible we see God position himself as the defender of the downtrodden and the abused. God is on their side. The Old Testament actually prohibited stealing. You know, in the law, uh, the, the commandment in Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. Well, that wasn't only talking about property. It also was talking about people, human beings who have far greater worth to God than property. But you know, even the New Testament, there's a, there's a few texts that maybe you haven't heard of or thought about before in relation to slavery as it was practiced in our nation. The New Testament clearly teaches that the trafficking of human beings, and sadly today this is still going on um, much more than we realize across the world and even in our own nation and even in our own county, the trafficking of human beings, slavery, is a sin. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. And so we have here a list um, of, of sins that, that, that um, and sometimes there's one that I, want, that, that I hope will stand out to you here this morning. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy in chapter 1, talking about Christ who came to, to, to die to save the worst of sinners. And then in verse 9 he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners. And now he starts describing these kinds of sinners in category. For the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. So by the way, um, kids, listen up, right? What, what God considers to be really terrible. <laughs> for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. But what this word clearly means in the original language is those who take human beings against their will and enslave them. Liars, perjurers, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So in, in case you ever meet a skeptic or someone who tells you, that the Bible condones slavery, you can point them right here to this text. Actually, the New Testament is very, very clear that God views slavery and enslavers as an abomination. Revelation 18 talks about the destruction of Babylon, that great evil city that really typifies or symbolizes the kingdom of man. And in verse 11, so turn there with me if you will, if you've got the pew Bible... I'll tell you what page it's on here in just a second. It's on page, you find this on page 1038. And so what you have here is kind of a funeral dirge coming from the wicked world for this great city of Babylon that's been destroyed by God in judgment. Okay, and so the, the, the merchants cry out here in verse 11, and they're weeping because the consumers of their wares have been destroyed. And their wares that are listed here 
are cinnamon, this is verse 13, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. Revelation chapter 18, verse 13. So not only is the Bible not just silent on the topic of slavery as it is practiced today, uh, underground, and as it was practiced legally in our nation um, 200 years ago, well, really, eight, really 16th through the, eighth through the 19th century, for, so over several hundred peri- uh, years of time, not only does the Bible condemn that, but secondly, there were some key differences between the way slavery was practiced in our nation and in first century Rome to the audience of Romans chapter 6. It's estimated by scholars that about a third of the population of of the city of Rome, the imperial capital of Rome, in the first century were slaves. It took a lot of labor to make it work for everybody, okay? Some of these slaves were slaves against their will. Uh, They would have been captured in, in wars, and so if you didn't, you know, if you surrendered, that was considered dishonorable. You didn't fight to the last man. So the armies and sometimes even the populations of, of other countries were brought back and forced into indentured labor. But many, probably most of the slaves in Rome in the first century were actually what we might call bond servants who, in a sense, volunteered for service. Okay, they present, they, it was, this was a, a way when you uh, were in poverty, there wasn't a, a social security structure, okay? So if you had no means, you could go to a wealthy family and present yourself as a bondservant. And so these people often were, sometimes they were raised in homes uh, as a bondservant, but they were paid for their work. And it wasn't great wages, but they were paid for their, their labor, they were provided for, and they had the opportunity to eventually purchase their freedom. And so the, the Greek word doulos sometimes is translated servant or bondservant. Sometimes it's translated slave, and it was really just translators who decided which word in English to use. But they're all refer- it's all the same word in Greek. Okay, so, so Paul is using the illustration here of a bondservant. You might notice in verse 16, he says, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves. So there's an aspect of the will that enters into that place. Now, there are some similarities, of course. Once you are a bondservant, you can't just decide one day you don't want to be one. You, 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 you've got to buy your freedom back eventually. Okay. So, yes, you are obligated to your master, but it is something that you made a decision or your parents made a decision for you to enter into. Notice in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, Paul actually addresses... Christians who are bondservants. He says to them, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, wherever you find yourself in the the strata of society, Jesus is your ultimate Lord. That's what he's saying. He's your ultimate master. Now many servants had positions of responsibility and actually had the charge of handling large amounts of money. Remember in Matthew 25, 15, Jesus talked about a a parable of huge amounts of wealth being entrusted to bondservants, to doulas, right, to invest and to manage their master's wealth. Well, scholars tell us that likely more than half of the Roman church had been 
or worse still, bond servants. Half of the, over half of the people getting this letter from Paul had experienced this. So this was, a, this was an example, an idiom that really struck close to home. They were listening wide-eyed to Paul's main argument here. So back now to his main argument, what, what he's talking about here. Paul had already answered the question very thoroughly that we looked at last week uh, in verse 1 through 14. How can we willfully go on sinning once we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection? And the answer is, we can't. We're dead to sin and alive to God. So Paul gave a very thorough and convincing argument already about why it is completely inconsistent for a Christian to willfully continue down a path of, of sin when Jesus Christ is their Savior and, and their Lord. How the two just really don't go together. And, and of course that should lead us to just daily repentance and faith, right? I mean daily repentance and, and, and short accounts. Well, you know, Paul, probably like me, um, is a little bit OCD, okay? Um, he's made a convincing argument. He's nailed a death blow to the people who might say, well, hey, grace is an excuse for sin. But Paul's got to just hit that nail one more time, right, with his hammer. He's got to just make it clear that nobody could possibly misunderstand him. He's got to make sure that nail is deep in the, deep in, deep in the, in the wood. So he says here, one more time here, he gives a, another analogy of of bondservanthood or, or slavery. Now let me just read you John Stott's summary here of Paul's argument. The, the first argument was, since through spiritual baptism we were united to Christ and in consequence are dead to sin and alive to God, how can we possibly live in sin? Since through conversion we offered God to be his slaves and in consequence are committed to ob obedience, how can we possibly now claim freedom to sin? Does, does that make sense? That's, that's really, it's a, it's a lot of words here, but that's what Paul is arguing. So he said, wait a minute. When you trusted in Jesus, you didn't just get Jesus as Savior. You, you got him as Savior and Master or, or Lord. Okay, you can't split the two in half. So he's your king. He's your master. So you're following him. So to suddenly say, now wait a minute. Um, you don't get this aspect of my life. I want to I go this way here. That, that's totally incomprehensible. Right? It'd be like a, a slave telling his master, hold on a minute, um, you know, I'm taking the day off like it or not. You, know, you don't get to do that. F.F. Bruce put it this way, to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace at all. That's a pretty strong statement. But if, if we abuse the grace of God and think that God's grace gives us license to sin, that's an indicator that probably we never really understood what real saving faith was and never truly bowed the knee of our heart in, in legitimate faith before God. So there's two kinds of sinners here that I have in mind this morning with this message. Those, the first category would be those, if, and I, I pray there's none of you in, in this room like this, but if there are, it's, this is for you. You who are taking God's grace for granted intentionally. And enjoying your sin. Saying, I, I'm going to take my grace. I walked the aisle. I prayed a prayer when I was six. But I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do right now. And one day I'll get my act together 
But hey, I'm covered by the cross. I can do whatever I want. Okay? Maybe, have you ever heard, you've probably heard me say this before, that the gospel, that the Bible is, is intended to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted? Well, if, if that's you, what I just described, I hope you are afflicted this morning by this message. Because I want you to be saved. I want you to go to heaven. Number two, you may be a sinner who feels helpless and trapped in your sin. And you hate it, but it seems to be to have mastery over you. Okay. Well, I, I pray, my goal is that just in the, in the few minutes we have still this morning, you will find comfort from the Word of God. Uh, that it will comfort your, your heart. So really there's two parts to this message, uh, two, which are two questions. The first question is, is your master sin? And then we're going to ask, well, is your, is your master Jesus? And I, I pray your master is Christ. Uh, if it's not, if you recognize, hey, you know what? My master really has been and is today sin. I pray that today you will come to know Jesus. That you will, like, like Mark shared with us this morning, that you will simply repent from your sins, turn your heart, turn your life, your, 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 the, 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 the orientation of your heart to Christ and just call out to him in, in faith. Well, is your master sin? We are, we are born with sinful natures, which, which basically means that our will has sinful inclinations. So we can't help but sin, and, and we like it. Okay, I mean, we, we enjoy it. We like it. We want to sin. When Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, who were very proud of their ancestry, they answered him in John 8, 33, We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So how do you know whether you're a slave to sin or not? Well, do you repetitively, are, are you trapped? You know, are you constantly practicing sin? Does it have dominion over you? Is there a category of your life where sin has dominion over you? Sin is a cruel master. According to our text, it leads to greater sin, shame, and death. Let's look at the first one here. Sin leads to greater sin. Verse 19 says, for just in our text in Romans 6, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Right? So he's talking to Christians saying before you became a slave to Jesus, you were a slave to sin and it just led to greater sin. Be sure that your sin will take you further than you want to go. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you far more than you want to pay. Even in this life. And if you don't get forgiveness... The, for, the forgiveness of Christ, far more than you can imagine in the life to come. When I, when I think of this, I, I, I sadly think of fallen pastors. You know, I, I imagine that while they were studying Greek in seminary, they would have never thought they would have landed where they, where they landed in the shame. I think of, of an adulteress who, when she got ready for her wedding... And, and prepared the flowers and, and, all, and the cake and all the beauty of the wedding ceremony, never would have imagined that she would have destroyed her family through her 
sin. I think of sexual criminals locked away in jail, sort of folks who get beat up in, in the prison system. Okay, I, I don't think that at some point in their train of sin that led to greater sin, that, that they would have never imagined they could be where they, where they are. Sin always, always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs far more than you want to pay. So the place to, to cut it off is right at the beginning of the train. Well, sin leads to greater sin. It also leads to shame and to destruction. Verse 21, again, talking to Christians who used to be slaves of sin are now slaves of righteousness or slaves of Christ. Paul says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? I don't know about you, but there are sins that I've committed that when I look back and, and think about, I, I'm ashamed. And I have to go back to the blood of Jesus and say, covered, paid, white as snow. But sin destroys from within. It's like a cancer. And, and it and it grows without, and it destroys the people around us as well. It destroys families. It, it destroys cultures, even. Maybe some of the sins that we think are innocuous. Like maybe the sin that most of our commercials uh, appeal to. Envy. The, the Envy ravages cultures. Did you know that? I mean, a lot of the world is scared to death of envy. The Afghans are terrified to ever say to someone else, You're, you have a beautiful, that's a beautiful baby. Because maybe that person will think they were being envious. Or maybe you will inadvertently put a curse on that baby. And then, and then that baby gets sick and, and dies. And then that family gets vengeance on your family. And, and it, you know, it ever, it's just a never-ending circle of, of destruction. But even in our own culture, even in our own families, and kids, little kids... Bunny, listen up, okay? I want you to, I'm talking to you right now, okay, kiddos. Um, have you ever <clears throat> been upset because your brother or your sister got an extra cookie and you didn't? Has that ever bothered you before, right? Um, or maybe they got a, a, a present at Christmas that you deemed to be a little bit more valuable than what you got. It, it's not that you're upset that that, that cookie you ate wasn't good or that, that Christmas gift you didn't like. It's that somebody got something one up or better from you. Has that ever bothered you? Has that ever caused friction and problems in relationships? That's a big sin to confess to the Lord. Envy destroys families and it destroys cultures. Do you know in a lot of places, even in our own culture, people are afraid to achieve things. In a, lot of, in a lot of industries and in companies, people are afraid to stick their head too far above the, above the, above the water because they may get knocked because of envy. And it stymies human development and cultural advancement. And this is true around the world. So, so sin is destructive, even sins like envy. And worst of all, our sin separates us from God. Now we need to remember that, that sin isn't just something that's out there. It's within. Okay, it is the beast within. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed 
by his own lust. So we've got to stop blaming other people or our environment for our sin and take some ownership and repent for our sin. Okay, uh, The devil didn't make me do it. The devil may have tempted me to do it. My wife, it was not her fault that I blew up. It's my fault, right? It's my sin. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin leads to death. Verse 21b, the end of those things is death. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, you might think we're being a little dramatic here. We are not. Um, We had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Ernie Baker, some of the men who got together for a wonderful retreat this weekend. And the topic was personal holiness. Uh, there was a lot that was shared that was, that was great. I wish, I wish, well, I don't wish every single one of you were there. Uh, it might have been not quite great for the little ones, for some of the little ones. But the principles, uh, you know, were, were, were wonderful. I hope you'll come back tonight because not only will we be praying for the lost folks in our lives, people who need Jesus, we're going to get a chance to hear from a couple of the guys who are there tonight. We're going to get up and give you a summary of of what they learned, what the message was. Um, But one of the things that that Dr. Baker said was that sin is not a mosquito. That that lustful thought that you're having, you know, that you might just be tempted to like, ah, I'm going to swat that, you know. Um, You know what, it's not a mosquito, it's a rattlesnake. And it wants to kill you. And that is so true. Sin begets sin, and it really will kill you. It leads to death. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Eternal death. But even death, even physical death, sin, I mean, sin leads to physical death and destruction. So we have got to hate our sin and kill it. Think about the sin of lust and what lust does to families and to people and how it dehumanizes and how it even separates people from the people that they love the most. Several quotes here from Dr. Baker. He said, when, where you go, not when, where you go under pressure says much about what's going on in the worship of your heart. Where you go under pressure, so do, do I go to the Lord? Or do, do, do I go to pornography? That says much about what's going on in the worship of our heart. He said pornography is a worship disorder. And boy, there's a lot of things you could substitute for that word. um, Or even a lot of different kinds of pornography, we could say. That both men and women are led astray with. It's a worship disorder. Fallen creatures, here's another quote. Naturally run to worship the creation instead of the creator. So idolatry is easy for humans. I want you to think a little bit about lust. And, and this, is, this was in our notebook. So if anybody wants this quote, email me or, or Bart and we'll get it to you. Um, we, could, we could spend the rest of the sermon talking about this sentence I'm going to read to you. But that would be too depressing. So I'm just going to read you a sentence. But it's this. this, is, this we need to understand the beast that we're up against here. Okay? 
Lust is enslaving, selfish, unruly, insane, and illogical. And just stop for a moment and think about that. Um, how stupid of a sin it is. In the moment, you know, guys will, people will sacrifice their careers and, and their families because of lust. It's passionate, blinding, prone to fantasy and led by fantasy. Has a short memory of pain. Lust is willing to abuse grace. Feeling orient, it's feeling oriented, it's prone to excess, prone to excuse. Feels like a need, it's never truly satisfied. Lust controls, it resists change because, because habits become deeply ingrained. It's alive, fed by the external, like entertainment. Prone to perversion, takes you further than you ever thought you would go. It wreaks havoc, it's violent. Desensitizing and deceitful, it camouflages. Bold, self-destructive, lazy, and leads to death, end quote. Think about that for a little while. We have got to hate our sin, brothers and sisters, and flee temptation of all kinds. You need to run like Joseph. We talked about building walls and, and safeguards. And that starts, he talked about, by doing some recon and understanding the nature of of the enemy within. I mean, where and when is it that you face temptation? And set some boundaries and, and accountability and filters such that you will better be able to fight in the evil day. So maybe it's wise to not only have something like covenant eyes on your computer, but maybe it's better just to get rid of the TV or the, or the cable provider. We, we don't do... Um, TV in our house, we have a TV and we watch like things off Prime, but we don't have network television. It's not so much to save money. It's I don't want all those commercials coming in because those commercials themselves have messages that can often lead to places that we don't want to go. And so it's interesting, a couple months ago, we were in a place with a regular TV set and actually we were enjoying it because we were enjoying watching sports. And my kids particularly were aghast at the commercials. Bunny in particular said, Dad, th th they're just trying to get your money from you. That's all. You don't need that car. You know, what in the world? And, and so she in particular is her mission. You know, the Lord has given me, the Lord knows I need safeguards. So, I mean, I already have a, a wife um, who sometimes I call Jiminy Cricket um, because in, in a good way, by conscience, Right? So we'll be hiking along, and she's a sign reader. So she'll see a sign that says, you know, no trespassing or do not cross or whatever. And Troy, the sign says, I'm like, guidelines. You know, come on, we're hiking. We're having, you know, climb that mountain. But the Lord has given me uh, a conscience in my wife. And if she's Jiminy Cricket, I've got a bossy bunny in the house. All right? Um, she, you know, she throws away my REI catalogs before I can read them. Because she's afraid I'll waste money and, and order something I don't need. So I'm, thank, I'm thankful. Well, John Piper said, I'm really thankful, by the way, for my, my bride. Um, she's about to take off on Friday uh, for 10 days. And I'm excited, or 12, how many days? 11 days. Man, I'm excited for her and, and for the ministry that this team's going to be able to do. But um, 
praying for survival without her. You know, John Piper said, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Catch that? You know, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Dr. Baker put it this way. He said, we can look up at the stars and say, Abba, Father. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, we can settle for mud pies. So often we're, we're playing with mud pies instead of communing with our Father. He put it this way, he also said, superior affections push out the inferior affections of the heart. Well, I was personally challenged during our time together for how as a church, and especially we as men, but all of us, as we interact with each other, how can we help each other believe at all times that we are living in the presence of God? What I mean by that is having more spiritual conversations than we do. Right? Um, crossing that line from the surface to the deep and giving glory to God. Um, even if it's just talking about an answered prayer or, pr- or stopping and praying right away. Uh, but I'm, I'm challenged for that. So that leads us to our point number two. Okay? Is, is sin your master? I pray it's not. I, I pray that you're battling it, you're fighting it. You know, uh, if you're like me and you are, we all have sin natures still, even as Christians. But it's like a knife fight. I mean, it's vicious. You have to, you got to get up every day and fight that dragon within. Not in your own strength, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but with great intentionality. So is your master Jesus? Are you fighting sin? Do you love him? Are you in his word? Paul introed his letter that we're reading with these words. Verse 1 of Romans 1. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. A doulos. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's his identity. The early church father Chrysostom said that slavery to Jesus is better than any freedom. The fruit of righteousness is obedience and it leads to sanctification. And that, that means being set aside as holy. Okay, And let me tell you, that's awesome. Youth, being holy, young people... Being holy is a joy. There is peace and power that comes from that. Okay, um, It is not being boring, being holy. Being holy is becoming more like God, which is the most incredible thing you can imagine. And it leads to eternal life. So our first point under is your master Jesus. According to our text this morning, serving Jesus is obedience. You'll notice in verse 16 that, okay, um, Slaves of sin are contrasted with, in the text, I'm calling it slaves of Jesus. But you notice in verse 16, we're called slaves of obedience. And then later in verse 18, we're called slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 22, we're finally called slaves of God. My point is that all of those are the same. A slave of God is a slave of obedience to Christ. And is a slave of righteousness. Someone who's being sanctified. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, Serving Jesus is obedience. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. F.F. Bruce described the standard of teaching. Well, what is that exactly? What's he talking about? The standard of teaching to which you were committed. Well, Bruce believes, and I think he's right, that probably the summary, this was the summary of Christian ethics 
based on the teaching of Christ that was regularly given to converts in the primitive church, the church that didn't yet have the Bible, the New Testament, to show them the way of life that they ought to follow. So freedom in Christ is not freedom to rebel against Christ. It's freedom to obey Christ. Now, there's something in our culture that just doesn't like this idea of obeying another. Elizabeth Elliot wrote about a trip that she took once to Scotland in which she observed a collie working with its master as a sheepdog, right? To, to herd a, a big flock or um, herd of, of sheep. And so it was running circles, doing its job around the herd, as, as she wrote in her words, barking, crouching, racing along, herding a stray sheep here, nibbing, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep, his ears listening for a tiny metal whistle from his master. She, she continues, I saw two creatures who were in the fullest sense in their glory. A man who had given his life to sheep, who loved them and loved his dog, and a dog whose trust in man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master. Well, how is your master Jesus calling you to obey? He might be asking you to do something radical. I hope you'll do it. Serving Jesus is obedience. Serving Jesus results in sanctification. That's a big word. We're going to talk about it in just a minute here. Look at verse 19. The second part of verse 19 says, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become Slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now we, we know that justification happens at the very moment of salvation, right? It's at that moment of first faith, when you first trust in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, that he declares you righteous. That he, that he, he puts all, because all of that sin that you ever did was put on Jesus, right? And Jesus bore the weight of that sin, he, he does not see that anymore. In fact, he sees in you the righteousness of Jesus. That's justification. It's a declaration. It's a legal term to declare righteous. Right? Some people use the phrase just as if I never sinned. Now, it's not that there was no penalty. Christ bore that on the tree. Okay, but God looks at you as righteous. Well, where does sanctification happen? Sanctification is walked out in the life of the believer. So it's a process. You might think of the stock market. You know, you, know you're, you're, you struggle some days. Some days are harder than other days. There might be seasons of life that are struggle, but, but your trajectory is upward. Okay, that's how we often think of it. I think it might be more like scribble, you know. Um, but there's a process of sanctification. But in another sense, and we don't have time today for me to take you to all the texts, but the Bible actually talks about sanctification as a once and for all as well. As being set aside as holy. At that moment that, that, that you came to know the Lord, he, he brought you and set you aside. You can even make the argument that it, in eternity past, when God elected you, he set you aside, sanctified you to become holy. 
So the process of sanctification is really becoming what we are. Right? We, I mentioned that last week. It's we are holy, we are righteous. God has declared us righteous and set us aside as holy in Christ. And now we've got to live that out every day through repentance and faith. I, last week actually on Monday, officially started a Hebrew exegesis class online at Southern Seminary. But the problem for me with this class is that it presumes you have a good, strong, working knowledge of Hebrew. Okay, um, I, I took Hebrew like eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, honestly, it was the hardest class I'd ever taken for me. Um, had something to do with the, the approach, it, the way it was taught. Um, you, you use a language or you lose it. And I honestly haven't really been using it much these last seven years. Now and then I'll, I'll you know, I do word studies. But, but, you know, what I mean is like reading it regularly, right? So this last few weeks... Um, I've, I've been probably averaging four to five hours a day on top of like all the pastoring stuff I do. Uh, like early mornings, late nights, just like tra- trying to cram myself with a fire hose of Hebrew to, to be able to catch up. And I, I felt like I was, felt like I was like uh, trying to catch a train, like on a horse. You know what I mean? Next to the train, trying to get enough speed to be able to jump on the train. And, and so I, did, I made my jump on Monday and now I feel like I'm kind of hanging on to the top of the train but it's a bullet train and it's speeding up. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping I can hang on and, and, and stay on the train and, and maybe even stand up and, you know, and, and move forward on this train. But last week, some things started clicking. And, 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 and mean, meaning spiritually. Like, you know, and, and like, like I, I'm looking at, there are all these words in Hebrew, words like chalel and tomeh and ayon and hot and chatat. All of those words are, are different variants of sin or defilement. There was a lot there in the Old Testament about being defiled as human beings and unclean. There were priests to, who, who, whose job was to determine if somebody was ceremonially unclean and whether they could enter the, the covenant or into the tent of meeting, right, to worship God or not. Right, had they touched a dead body. Or a lot of other things that would make them ceremonially unclean. We don't often think that way uh, anymore. And I'm glad, honestly, that we live in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and not the Old Covenant. That would have been a drag, I'm telling you, compared to what we have in Christ. Okay, But we should never take for granted that God is not holy. God is holy and in our sin we are defiled. Our sin is a big deal. God doesn't just kind of hold his nose and love us anyway. Our sin is offensive to a holy God. We are defiled and we should never sniff at our sin. Instead, we should say thank you to our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the tree for our sin. We should never take the cross for granted or our justification or our sanctification for granted. These are great gifts of God to us. And we were not only justified, we were not only declared legally righteous, as wonderful as that is, but we were sanctified too. We are being sanctified, but there is a sense in which we have been sanctified. We've been set apart as holy. That means God looks on us as being clean. Not only cleared legally of our sin, but literally purified and clean and beautiful. And I say thank you, Lord, for that. 
Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 10. And bear in mind that the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews, right, to Jewish people, thinking about the symbolism of the temple sacrifice and, the, and the, 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 even before that, the tabernacle type sacrifice, how that all worked, and purification rituals. And he writes in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an equal evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I want you to think about the baptism that we're about to witness here in a few minutes. Let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We have access to him through Christ, because of Christ. And praise God for that. If, if Jesus is your master, you really do have unfettered access to the Holy of Holies. All right. It's time to land the plane. That's the clue for you guys who are getting baptized. Go get ready. Serving Jesus brings eternal life. Verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note that slavery to sin produces wages. Just like a bondservant would get. What, what they deserve. What we deserve. But the wages is death. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But Jesus gives his servants... Eternal life. That's something that we could never earn. We could never earn eternal life. That is a gracious gift from God to all who trust in Christ. So come to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the greatest captain. He's the only master who always leads by example. As we sung earlier, he's the lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's the David, the root of David and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Come to him, all you who are tired from your labors. And he will give your soul true rest. He is gentle and humble in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is the good shepherd. And if you're in him, you will not be in need. He makes us lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. He restores our soul. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is right there with us, comforting us with his presence, leading us to safety. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are my master. I thank you that I no longer serve the the cruel and evil master of sin. Lord, I thank you that you have made the way for all sinners, every sinner who will trust in you, who will repent from their sin and just turn to you in, in, in childlike faith to come and to be saved. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't yet know Christ, if there's anybody here, whether they know it or whether they're self-deceived, who may be a slave to sin, 
Lord, today, would, would you lead them to talk to another believer in this room? And, and may they come to know you, our, our, our great master. I pray in your name. Amen.